Paratooth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. Hey, Parafans. Welcome to another episode of Paratruth Radio. My name's Justin. Eric took the night off tonight, so I am flying solo. Tonight we're going to be talking about hauntings, specifically hauntings in plantations. We're going to be having on special guest Richard Southall about his book, Haunted Plantations of the South. Now Paratruth presents Plantations, the Haunted South, with special guest Richard Southall. All right, so we've got some really amazing questions for Richard Southall. So let's get him on the line right now. All right, Richard, welcome to Paratruth Radio. Thank you for having me. Sure. Now, before we get started, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, tell everybody where they can find you, find your book, a little bit about yourself, all that good stuff. Okay, as everybody would probably know, my name's Richard Southall. Um, I've written a series of books uh, through Llewellyn Worldwide, including How to Be a Ghost Hunter, Haunted Route 66, Ghost of America's Legendary Highway, and most recently, Haunted Plantations of the South. Um, you can find the books on Amazon.com, at your local um, bookstore, or from Llewellyn.com. Um, if anybody's interested in getting in contact with me directly, uh, I I have an email address simply as hauntedplantations at gmail.com. Um, as for me, I would say that I became involved with the paranormal as in my early teens. Um, ended up moving into a house in West in rural West Virginia. Turned out that found out it was haunted shortly after we moved in. Um, started doing some investigations, spoke to some neighbors, and so on and so forth. And let's just say sometimes your life chooses you. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Is that kind of what got you started into ghost hunting? It is. It is. Um, I was probably 14 or 15. Like I said, we had just moved into a small farmhouse. And periodically we would hear these steps, these like large stomps coming down the steps from the second floor to the first floor. And we checked, there was nothing there. Um, originally, I thought it was my brother playing a joke on me until we were watching TV at the same time, and we heard it. And from that time on, um, there have been a few apparitions here and there, but I got involved in that. And also, I live not too far from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, mm-hmm. which is where the the infamous, infamous Mothman story had, had taken place. Right. Did that interest you when you like did it did that make you want to move to Point Pleasant or was that just a, like a side effect of when you were moving there no oh, it was a side effect oh. um, I had lived in that area my whole life we had just moved to another location but oh but yeah so at that point that got me interested in the paranormal and just the the experiences in the house and and just literally it was like maybe a 20 minute drive to Point Pleasant so and that's what got it started. And I've been doing um, ghost hunting since. I mean, this was back in the late 1980s. Um, there weren't any shows like uh, Ghost Adventures or anything right. along those lines. But, you know, I, I guess I did uh, ghost hunting before it was really popular. Right. Well, and, you know, paranormal has become more and more mainstream. You know, back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a very taboo topic. Right. Um, the thing is, I think more people were interested in it than 
than meets the eye simply because um, look at all the books that have been written about it. But the one thing that we've got today that we didn't have then was the Internet. We weren't able right. to find a way to communicate with each other and, and find people with similar interests. Uh, I think that we've got the shows and the fact that ghost hunting has gone mainstream partly because of the Internet. Right, exactly. Now, everybody knows about haunted businesses, haunted houses. Why haunted plantations? What made you want to do a book on that? Well, originally I went ahead and did the book on um, Haunted Route 66, and I knew there was such an emotional connection with the people and the locations they had haunted. Um, now, in regards to Route 66, it's only it's less than 100 years old. It was founded in 1926, but and I started doing some checking, and many of these plantations in, in the South, my gosh, they go back two to 300 years. Mm-hmm. And... And again, usually whenever there's a haunting, there's an emotional connection. And considering some of the events that took place in, in the South and on and near the plantations, it would just, it would just make sense that these locations would be as haunted or more haunted than others. Now, going through the book and looking at how many there were, did you have any that, uh, stick out in your mind oh there's actually a few um yeah um well originally whenever i was doing research for the book i had over 200 plantations and i narrowed it down to over 65 which are included in the book but um i'd have to say there's probably three or four that really catch my attention but one in particular would be it's called the hampton plantation out of mcclellanville south carolina Now, this was a plantation house that was built in 1735 by a man named Frederick Rutledge. And when his son, John Rutledge, was of age, he inherited inherited the plantation and all the responsibilities with it. However, um, which was... What was typical during the day was that plantation owners would often marry... um, the daughters of other plantation owners because a lot of the cases the women were raised to a certain uh, lifestyle just like the the men were they were expected to be ladies the men were expected to be gentlemen and one thing led to another and then we had several plantations that merged but in this case he ended up what john did was he fell in love with a local a local lady that had no background in working or even living on a plantation now he asked for her hand her hand in marriage from her father he turned her down um, her and his family forbade john from ever seeing her again um which wasn't uncommon during that time but anyway make a long story short he fell into a deep depression family members had arranged to have a a series of parties or balls at the plantation house and what in hopes that he would meet and fall in in love with one of the plantation owner's daughters Mm. that didn't happen Uh, one day during one of the parties he ended up excusing himself and he went to his bedroom on the second floor and he shot himself it was actually march 5th of 1830 now he died two days later and after his death people would hear the sound of a gunshot and oftentimes they would see an apparition of a man fitting rutledge's description in a rocking chair, looking out the window. So, I mean, it's just little stories like that. So it's just, it's important to know the history of an area, um, even the culture of an area, to really truly understand a haunting. Right. So, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. Well, and as a ghost hunter, you know, you have to do the research to find out what or who may be there. So... It's kind of interesting to get into that. I sometimes feel that getting into the history of it is way more interesting than doing the ghost hunting part of it. In some cases, I'd agree. Um, yeah. 
a lot of people think that ghost hunting is simply going to a place that's haunted or allegedly haunted and just trying to take pictures and and get EVPs. But but that's really not the case. Um, I'd say that 80% of an actual paranormal investigation doesn't take place on the site. Right. It takes place um, by doing research, by actually interviewing eyewitnesses, um, trying to debunk things, so to speak. I What I've done in several cases was I was able to determine that what may have, quote, unquote, led to a haunting actually had a um, typical and normal explanation to it. Um, only after I'm able to, to kind of weed out the possibility of it being normal would I even consider it being a haunted you know, an actual haunting. But I've had those. I've I've had those to the point that I've been, well, I've been doing the investigations for several years now. Well, the one thing that uh, that I saw uh, is that you had actually retired from ghost hunting. Why did Why did you do that? I've got a seven year old. Um, oh, yeah. I, I guess that might be. I had considered doing the retiring, and I had actually taken the. You know, taking the steps to do so, but as soon as I, as soon as I really started to spread the word that that was the case, uh, it turns out that people started calling and emailing me. So, oh. um, sometimes your life chooses you. Let's just put it that yeah. way. So, so yeah, it's just that, yeah, basically between work and and having a family, that takes up a lot of time. But like I said, I've I've been doing this for for years and I just I guess I wasn't ready to to hang it up right right at this point maybe at some point but I kind of doubt it right yeah well <laughs> the one thing that uh, just fascinates me too is as you said your life chooses you uh, me and Eric had had shows uh, prior to this one we had one together and then we had separated and had two separate shows took a break for about a year and you know one day we're like do you want to get back into this and i'm like absolutely let's do it so paratruth radio was born wow so you know exactly what i'm talking about yeah and i mean we had had a investigative group when we had our old our first show uh it kind of mimicked the name night stalkers and uh it was very interesting like um I've told people, and we've talked about it on the radio, that we actually got to do the first paranormal investigation in Jeffrey Dahmer's family home where he grew up and committed his first murder. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting to hear the history because, you know, people that are disturbed, you know, you don't really know what their childhood is like. Mm-hmm. And until somebody writes a book about it or whatever, so just to do that investigation was really interesting, and I would love to do any historical site like like the plantations that you were doing research on. I would love to go and do an investigation somewhere like that. Well, maybe we'll have to plan that sometime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be a good one. And I'm Eric's been dying to go. Ghost hunting as well, so it's been a long time since we've been on one, so it, it'll be a good uh, experience. Um, now, one thing that uh, interests me about the histories uh, in any of the uh, documentation that you went through, the research that you did, did you ever find that these plantations were haunted before people, you know, before the the plantations went under? Yeah, in some cases there were uh, some plantations that had reports of hauntings. Mostly it had to do with either soldiers that had died in front of or in the plantation. Now, what usually happened was many of the plantation houses, um, what they would do is whenever there was a battle that was nearby, the soldiers, the troops would actually commandeer and take over the plantation house. And... Well, they turned it into a makeshift hospital. Obviously, some of the soldiers would die, mm-hmm. and pretty much they'd be in agony when they did so. Now, in some cases, the family members um, were able to move in after the after the Civil War had ended, or it was purchased by other individuals. And at that point, there were several accounts of um, either the slaves, the 
or in many cases the soldiers actually having you know having haunted a place even before the turn of the 20th century wow so these go way back they yeah. can't going through the, the the research and you know finding all these different cases of soldiers dying i'm sure there was plenty of um slaves being tortured and dying and that sort of thing uh is there any of those stories specifically that that stick out to you well actually there is one that really caught my attention it's um a place edgewood plantation out of charles city virginia now it was a gothic revival plantation house built in 1854 it was renovated into a bed and breakfast in the 1970s um According to the stories, in 2001, a guest came to stay at the Edgewood uh, Bed and Breakfast with a specific request that she wanted a room where she could be, you know, undisturbed. And she didn't want to be able to talk to any of the ghosts, which that kind of caught the manager off, like they just caught her off guard. So she gave her a room, and the next day the lady came back and demanded a different room because she had been kept up most of the night. Now, the manager was able to give her a different room per her request, and the next morning the lady got up and she checked out, saying that she had been talking with a young man by the name of Aaron Young. Okay, nobody had heard of that name before, and in some research actually uncovered the name of Aaron Young, and he was actually a Confederate that was with Virginia's 20th Regiment that had passed near Edgewood. Now, the thing is, he didn't die in that area. This is what really caught my attention. He didn't die there. He actually died in 1913 in Work County, West Virginia, not too far from where I live. Now, and that goes to show that sometimes a haunting doesn't have to be associated with a death. It has to do, in a lot of cases, with an emotional connection. So, yeah, Well, and I truly believe that as well. You know, there's um, a lot of people that believe that ghosts are here for a reason. You know, they are human spirits that stayed behind. Uh, my co-host, Eric, is comes from a Christian standpoint, and he believes that ghosts and hauntings are uh, demonic in nature, just because they seem like ghosts, they're just trying to, to deceive us. Um, where are your um, beliefs on that? Hmm. I've been asked this question several times, and I've had to do a lot of thinking about it. Um, first of all, in, in most cases, I simply believe that hauntings or ghosts, if you want to call them that, are recordings. Something happens, it leaves an impression, and it tends to play back periodically. I think that in a lot of cases you get the um, electrical disturbances, like if you get a, a flashlight or a camera that is in a haunted area, it mm. tends to drain batteries. It could almost, in essence, be recharging it. But, but my thought is most of them are recordings. Now, there are spirits, I believe, in, in, in addition. I think that in in regards to spirits, sometimes the people may not realize that they've died. They may have died so suddenly or even violently um, that they may not even realize that they've passed on. So they're kind of stuck, if you will. Um, the other ones would be they have unfinished business. So I know of people that have been at the point of death. They have simply, and this is just not necessarily in regards to hauntings. It has to do with human nature. Mm. But they were on the point of dying, but they've held on just to say goodbye to a family member that was coming in from out of town. So if somebody's got that much of a control over, you know, whether they pass on or not, I mean, if someone's got unfinished business and they've got a very strong emotional connection to that unfinished business, my gosh, it only goes to reason that we would have hauntings in that case. Um, but in a nutshell, ghosts are pretty much non-sentient. Spirits would be sentient. Right. All right, folks. Uh, we are talking to Richard Southall about his book, Haunted Plantations of the South. We'll be back in just a few minutes after Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. 
Did you know that cockroaches can make group decisions? According to Factsides.com, when 50 cockroaches are presented with three shelters that can only house 40, they'll split evenly into two groups and leave one shelter empty. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name's Justin. I'm flying solo tonight. My co-host, Eric, is out for today. And uh, we are talking to Richard Southall about his book, Haunted Plantations of the South. Now, Richard, one thing that uh, has kind of been rattling around in my mind since we uh, talked a couple days ago uh, to get you set up on Skype was uh, your... your um, your career and that uh, you deal with a lot of people who have addiction problems and whatnot. And um, yes. one of the biggest things that I always try to struggle with is, um, you know, is, is hauntings something that is actually happening to people or are people, uh, maybe there's a mental disorder there that they're having problems with and they've just not been diagnosed or there could be drugs involved Two, the one thing that I wanted to ask you is, as as a ghost hunter, do you um, always ask people those types of questions, or is it something that you wait to be prompted for? I kind of go ahead and get a feel for the person um, in a lot of cases. Now, I do have to rule out whether the person is using, and since I've been working in this profession for 11, almost 12 years, I pretty much have a good idea whether somebody may be under the influence or may have experienced something while under the influence. So I try to rule that out. And and even though I am a substance abuse therapist, I mean, I have to realize just because someone may have a, uh, a personality disorder or some kind of mental condition does not necessarily mean that they're not experiencing paranormal events. Do I believe everything that I hear? No. I have to look at things. One, I try to debunk it first. Right. And, it, and then I try to find logical explanations for anything that might be considered a haunting. I Usually, whenever I do an investigation, if there's more than one witness, I'll talk to them separately so that they wouldn't necessarily feed off of each other, so to speak. Um, in regards to substances... My gosh. If you take a look at crystal meth or even bath salts in some occasions, that um, it's, people can be up for days at a time. Now, that being the case, whenever they're up for any length of time, people commonly report what's called shadow people. Now, we've all heard of shadow people in regards to the paranormal. Yep. Now, in this case, what it is is that the body is so tired and it just simply can't rest is that the brain is actually sleeping while it's while it's awake if that makes any sense so you get to see the 
get to see the shadow people out of the corner of, out of the corner of your eye. So that I don't think would be paranormal. Uh, of course, you get people that try hallucinogens. Of course, they're, that in some cases can mimic um, a near-death experience, so to speak. It can it can alter your perception. So what I need to do is make certain that any kind of paranormal event doesn't necessarily fit into that potential category. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm getting as accurate of information as I can. Right. Another thing that I think about, about uh, just in regards to mental disorder and uh, substance abuse and that sort of thing, uh, when there is a haunting, like a really bad haunting, and some people could call it a demonic haunting, uh, you know, there are people that believe that uh, spirits that get caught here tend to get angry and get a little bit dark. Um do you think that people with mental disorders and uh, using substances that uh, it can affect them more than the average person? Um, never really thought about it that way, but I can understand that in regards to certain substances, your inhibitions tend to go down and your guard tends to go down, and that might increase the susceptibility of um, of a paranormal event affecting affecting you so if you think about that so that's that be my my short answer to that i i could get back with you with a more detailed answer right well uh, one of the things that uh i sometimes wonder with these these uh hauntings in, in historical places like the plantations in any of the plantation stories that you came across or the history, did you come across any where people were using, I don't know, witchcraft, Ouija boards? Because there there were such things back then as well. Um, did you find anything like that? Actually, no. No, I didn't. Um, and that's actually in some cases surprising, but no. Hmm. Uh, mostly it had to do with, with an event... That was, if you want to call it, a catalyst that led to the haunting. It could be a suicide, or it could be a shooting. It could be uh, simply the death of a child or anything along those lines. Um, that usually would be the origin of a haunting. Um, as for things actually being conjured, didn't get anything from that. No. Okay. Well, going into the actual the Ouija board part of it, as a ghost hunter, how do you feel about the Ouija board? Wow. Um, I'm of two minds. One, I think that it could be the subconscious moving things. Mm. And, and that can be taken one of two ways. One, a person can absolutely, in essence, um, becoming more aware of the surroundings, and they could subconsciously move it to actually get a legitimate message, or they could get a message that they want to give. So that's that's one that's one train of thought. The other one would be is that it can be a conduit in some cases. Um, I haven't really dealt with them. I played with them once, once whenever I was a teenager. Didn't have a good experience with it. Scared myself and decided not to play with them anymore. Now, well, and, yeah, that, that I mean, that's the same for me as well. And one thing that both me and, and Eric agree on is, um, unfortunately, it's a way to open a portal. And whether you're trying to reach a loved one or just a, a dead person in general, unfortunately, there are more malevolent spirits that will come through and more times than not yeah more times than not so we completely discourage whether you know like i said i come from a different perspective than than eric does and we both agree on that fact oh yeah yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't want to play with them yeah so going back into the book a little bit uh when you were doing your research, uh, what made you choose the specific plantations that you covered in the book? Well, what I did was actually, like I said, I had originally a little over 200, and I narrowed it down to a little over 65. Partly, I wanted to make sure that the stories were unique and not simply um, folklore or legend. Now, 
going back to Route 66 as an example, um, most every state that Route 66, um, you know, passed through had a story of the Phantom Hitchhiker. Okay. That, yeah, the story is so common that it became legend, you know, it became part of our folklore. Mm -hmm. So what I did was once I came up with a list of the, of the plantations and in regards to choosing what would be in the book and what would not be in the book, I weeded the stories that were so alike out because I wanted to make sure it was based on an actual event rather than hearsay and, and second and third person accounts. So that's why I did that. And once I was able to narrow it down, I did research on the history. I mean, it's good to tell a ghost story, but it, it makes it even more real whenever you can get the background to why a place is haunted rather than the simple fact that it is. So that's how I did that. Is 200 the only amount that we had for plantations in the United States? Were there more? Oh, it depends on what your definition of a plantation is. Um, now, different places had different definitions. Um, one, you had to have over... 300 acres, another one you had to have over a 1,000 acres. It just depended. Um, what I ended up doing, I divided the, well, the plantations can be divided into two separate categories, antebellum, which means pre-Civil War, and postbellum, which is after the Civil War. So if you got to take into account that there's a great difference in terrain within the entire American South. You've got coastal plantations, you've got plantations closer to the to rivers, you've got plantations that are, you know, surrounded by forests, and each one of them was built individually based on the terrain and and the architectural styles varied because of the terrain. So that's actually an interesting concept to it because there was a bunch of different types of plantations as far as sugar cane, cotton, and that sort of thing as well. Right. Yeah, and there were. And then just also based upon different uh, locales. Some some parts of the South, it actually would be better for having sugar cane. Other other parts had to do with they could grow they could grow cotton better. It just all depended on the area and how they were um, and how the actual crops were raised. So it varied. Now, are any or all or some of these plantations open to the public now as historical sites or uh, hotels or anything like that? Yes, there's an. Usually, it's divided. It's going to be divided like into three categories. Um, first one's going to be a private residence. Um, what I usually do is, if it is a private residence, um, I would either again take that out of the book, or if I was given permission, then I would include that in a book with an indication that it's a private residence. I, another would be the bed and breakfast. A large number of the plantations listed in the book, they are bed and breakfast or places that you can visit during the day. Um, and the third category, I would say, would be museums or state parks. So, I'll give you an example. And there's a place called Annabellum Plantation in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Now, the plantation houses that are at the park were not originally there. They were moved in, in an attempt to actually preserve the history and to actually save the buildings themselves. They have a number of buildings throughout the entire state that had been moved there. And the cool thing about that place is you can visit there during the day and get a, a taste of all the different architectural styles. You get a taste of all of the different types of buildings associated with the plantations. You've So... That would that would be probably one of the prime examples. If, if you wanted to get the most bang for your buck, mm. to go to a place along those lines. Um, Annabelle, my gosh, there are ghosts associated with that plantation uh, area, that state park too. Um, one is called the Thornton House. It was... Even though um, the Annabellum Plantation Park is in Stone Mountain, there's a place called the Thornton House that was originally located in Union Point, Georgia. It's the oldest building. It was built in 1790. 
And since it was moved there, there's been the apparition of a boy about 10 years old that's been consistently seen near a bedroom on the second floor. It's The apparition appears to be so realistic that visitors often think that it's a uh, real child until he disappears right in front of their eyes. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that would kind of... Uh tell you that it was probably not something that uh, was real. <laughs> no, probably not. And and there's another one that's um it's originally located in Covington, Georgia, several several miles away. It was brought to Stone Mountain, but it's called the Graves Plantation and it was built in 1830. And what usually happens there isn't so much that an actual apparition, but it's the sounds of people uh, singing and, and speaking, um, and oftentimes it's accompanied by a drop in temperature. Now, and also you've got some basic poltergeist activity, small items being moved from place to place. Um, sometimes they disappear and come back at a later time, things like that. But, but if again, back to the original question, um, each of the stories in the book actually tells whether it is a private residence, whether it is a bed and breakfast, or a place that you can stay overnight, or if it is a um, public park or museum that you could visit. So, Now, out of those ones that are bed and breakfasts, are most of them haunted, or only some of them? Um, well, it's a book of ghost stories, so all of them... <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, then that answers the question, I guess. <laughs> now, any of these bed and breakfasts, though, do they uh, advertise that it's haunted? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... Uh, well, think about We've got Myrtle's Plantation, for example, one of the most famous haunted plantations in in the nation. I mean, it's in St. Francis, Francisville, Louisiana. They Their claim to fame is that their plantation is haunted that their bed and breakfast is haunted and people are waiting months just to spend the night in a room to um, to actually catch the apparition of William Winter who ended up ended up dying actually got shot in front of his house in front of the mansion on January 26th of 1871 so people are wanting to see his apparition they're wanting to see the um, apparition or experiencing the um, the ghost of his mistress Chloe or even there's even by what I understand there's a mirror there that if uh, you look into it, you can almost see the either handprints or the faces of of some of the ghosts that that are allegedly haunting the area. So they, the Myrtles embraces this. So in other plantations that have been turned into bed and breakfast have also embraced it. All right, folks, we're going to take our next break. I'm talking to Richard Southall about his book, Haunted Plantations of the South. We've got your paranormal headlines, and we will be right back. And now, Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines. Hey, Parafans, Justin here with your paranormal headlines. These headlines are from AlteredDimensions.net. Scientists baffled by mysterious dancing ball of light caught on CCTV camera in synagogue. For all intents and purposes, you would assume this mysterious globe of light captured on CCTV video was a rare but explainable case of ball lightning. Trouble is, the locals reported the weather was clear with not a lightning storm in sight. Rabbi Michael Oishi discovered the oddity when reviewing CCTV footage taken at his synagogue. Oishi says the video was shot around 4 a.m. on May 28, 2015 at the Glymat Rosa Synagogue in Zaporozhye in southeast Ukraine. Unable to discern what the strange floating globe was, he shared the video on Facebook with this message. Strange things happened in the synagogue around 4 o'clock in the morning. Experts believe the video is authentic, but are unable to provide a viable explanation of the dancing ball of light. Theories include ball lightning. At the time, the weather was not conductive to ball lightning, which is a rare glowing ball of plasma electrical energy, sometimes formed during electrical storms, or an infrared light shown on the camera. 
which could not produce the 3D movement we clearly see in the video. Others have proposed an angel, a strange low-flying UFO or alien probe, or possibly a ghostly spirit. Oishi says he's going to assume it was ball lightning and noted that he was amused his synagogue got such wide exposure and hoped that the attention would help get the word out to local Jews. I can say that I'm happy the lightning came because it's an opportunity to show our synagogue to local Jews in another way, not only in religious terms. It's an opportunity for us to bring the synagogue to the people, so the synagogue will be talked about among people in the city. However, others aren't so quick to buy the ball lightning explanation. One local woman said, This looks more extraterrestrial or paranormal to me, but why ghosts or aliens would be visiting this place, I have no idea. Oh, we have an idea. The newly built synagogue and Jewish community center came under attack just last year from local hooligans with Molotov cocktails. The video, which shows the entryway to the synagogue, clearly defined basketball-sized globe of light enters the frame from above. The light floats downward and pulses, changes shape while floating in front of the entryway before rising quickly out of the frame. Cirrus lights, mystery lights on dwarf planet bear striking semblance to street lights of earthly cities. Scientists were baffled when they were first spotted in 2004, and as NASA's Dawn spacecraft probe draws nearer to the dwarf planet, the Cirrus lights mystery grows deeper. The photo shows the striking similarity between the Cirrus lights and earthly lights photographed from space. That they look near identical is easily apparent. Chris Russell, principal investigator for the Unmanned Dawn mission at the University of California, Los Angeles, agreed that the origin of the lights has scientists scratching their heads. The bright spots in this configuration make Cirrus unique from anything we've seen before in the solar system. Cirrus is the largest object in the asteroid belt, which lies between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. As of June 6, 2015, Dawn is now within 2,700 miles above Cirrus' surface and is set to descend to 900 miles above the dwarf planet in August. Although NASA scientists remain baffled, possible explanations include volcano, geyser, rock, ice, salt, or streetlights of cities. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. folks welcome back to paratruth radio my name is justin again if you've been listening i've been flying solo today so uh eric will be back next week i've been talking to richard southall about his book haunted plantations of the south now richard we had just gotten done talking about the different bed and breakfasts that advertise hauntings uh the one guest that we had had on uh a couple months ago, I believe, was Charles Cassidy. Uh, he done a ghost on, uh, or done a book, excuse me, on uh, Cleveland ghosts, and uh, he had said that you know there's more and more people that are advertising that their businesses are haunted. Uh, I just wanted to get your intake on that. Like, how do you feel? Is it becoming more common? Okay. Um, well, I rarely look at things in black and white. Uh, it could be. One, that the paranormal's gone mainstream, so pretty much the paranormal has become normal. So the people that may have been hesitant to share their ghost stories are now coming forth. 
So they might be able to share those stories that they, they weren't able to in the past. Right. It's, it, it could be an advertising thing to get more business. So that's going to be up to the individual guests to determine. I mean, part of it is for entertainment value, if you want to think about it that way. We like to be scared. Right. Right. Well, and one of the biggest places in Ohio is Mansfield Prison. Everybody who has ever been a ghost hunter from Cleveland, Ohio specifically, wants to go to Mansfield Prison because not only do they advertise it, but it's, it's well known that it's haunted because the bigger uh, ghost hunting shows like Ghost Hunters, uh, I'm not sure if... Uh, Ghost Adventure did one. I know Ghost Hunter did for sure at Mansfield Prison, and it, it's just well documented that it is. So, and it, that that's the other thing, as you said, the paranormal has become normal. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it has become the norm now. So it, it's it's just really interesting to see that a lot of these places advertise now in. Um, in your opinion, do you think that any of these places are not haunted and they're just advertising to get business? I I couldn't even speculate to that. It's it's within the realm of possibility. I'd like to think that any bed and breakfast or hotel that would claim to have paranormal activity would be authentically having paranormal activity. But again, you know, I would say that that's up to the discretion of the guest to determine that on on that same subject you know there's so many people that uh claim that they have hauntings um or they actually do either mm-hmm. or um do you have you, in the book and going through the plantations did you come across any stories in history that were the same any uh stories of hauntings that were similar or close to the same well in a number of the stories um one thing I've noticed is that there are a lot of Civil War soldiers. I mean, obviously, like I had mentioned earlier, many of the battles that had taken place had actually taken place within yards of the plantation house. Mm-hmm. So, again, with any kind of a battle going on, there's going to be casualties. And, the, my gosh, how can I put it? The battlefield medicine was horrible at that time. Um, you've heard the phrase, bite the bullet. What what they would do at the time, the soldier, if they were injured, they would actually be asked to bite a bullet while their arm or their leg was being amputated on the field. So that's excruciating. Right. And that happened time and again and again. So, yeah, that being the case in many of the plantation houses throughout the eight states that I've written about, there have been sightings of soldiers. Um, Same thing with slaves, too. I mean, they lived in very oppressive um, living conditions. And sometimes that, again, that emotional connection to an area can lead to a haunting. So... I'd say of the types of places, I guess the common hauntings associated with the plantations would be the soldiers, would be the slaves. And and I kind of alluded to earlier, sometimes the plantation owners themselves, like in regards to, um, in regards to the myrtles or even regards to the, um, the soldier, um, the soldier, I'm sorry, the plantation owner who had shot himself. There's, there's an emotional connection. And that's the common thread, if you will. Right. Well, and one thing that I've said a lot of times is anything is possible. You know, it could be that the hauntings that we're coming across could be demons in disguise just playing on the the history of the place. And, I, you possibly. know, personally... I'm a firm believer that go you know people's spirits can get stuck here um, for numerous reasons, whatever the case may be. Um, but I'm not as close-minded to say that all of these hauntings can't all be demonic in nature as well. I'm open-minded about things about that, so I'm not going to say anything in absolutes. I mean. What I've seen over the years, it's mostly recordings and in some cases spirits haven't had anything truly, if you want to call it demonic per se, but 
I would say that there was one case where we went into this house and we didn't know which room it was to begin with, but we found out that a person had been killed in a particular room. When we went into that room, there was such a heaviness. Um, just the ambiance was entirely different mm-hmm. the rest of the house. And it just... It was palatable, if you will. And, but as for having anything darker than that, like being, having something attach itself to you, not so much. Um, now, some of the people that I've done investigations with, what they would do later on is cleanse an area, do a smudging. So, mm-hmm. af- after an investigation, just as a precaution. But- if that makes any sense. Right. Well, and that, I mean, that's, it seems to be a common thing as, as a ghost hunter, not necessarily cleansing the house, but more times than not, you don't get any activity at all. If you do, it's usually a recording, as you said. There were numerous times when me and Eric could feel, you could just feel that there was yeah. something there. And, and um, I was going to say, you can't really describe that until you've experienced it. Right. We, someone who's never experienced that feeling, they, they don't get it. But once you've experienced it, then you, then you don't have to explain it to someone else. Right. Well, and that that kind of makes you wonder, though, too, is this something dark? Because if, it, if it's a spirit that's just communicating to you through EVP, you're not feeling anything, is, does that mean that that spirit is a dark spirit because the heaviness is there or is it just a a spirit of a human trying to manifest itself it's very as you said it's very hard to discern things like that right i um i agree with that now could it be possible absolutely um have i truly experienced anything demonic Mm, i haven't or at least i don't think i have let's just put it that way right if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the last questions I have for you is doing the research in, uh, for the book and everything, Did you were you able to actually go to any of these locations to do more research about it? Not physically, no. But I was able to call a number of the um, plantations that have become bed and breakfast and be able to talk to the managers and be able to get some information that wasn't previously published. I was able to do that, and as my work schedule will allow, I do plan on going to some of these plantations at some point in the future, hopefully later this summer. That would actually be interesting maybe to follow up with you as well. Uh, If you do get a chance, please let me know. Um, Absolutely. Now, uh... Final question, because we did go over a little bit uh, that you had said that uh, some of these places were actual residents as well. Uh, Doing the research, calling these places, whether it was a business or a residence, did you have anybody tell you, no, please do not have that information in in your book? Actually, there were a few cases, and and how I look at it, yeah, it's a book of ghost stories, but I'm also going to be very respectful. I'm not going to exploit anybody for any reason, but... I think that if some place is haunted and the family owns that and they don't want to share the story, then they have every right not to. Right. So, and at their request, you know, I opted not to include anything like that in the book. Right. I just out of respect. And that's common decency, I believe. Well, and, you know, most ghost hunters, if they have a show or if they are trying to give the information to other people, you know, there is. Most people will give a disclosure paperwork or, you know, just get a verbal disclosure or whatever. So I do appreciate that you are one of those respectable people that get get the okay to, to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my thought is all a person's got is their name and their word and their reputation. There, give you an idea, there was a case... It was actually, I've written about it in the book. It was called LeBeau Plantation down in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but some people had actually broken into it about two, maybe three years ago and caught it on fire. They were um, just a group of people, just, I think they were drinking and they were quote unquote doing a ghost hunt and 
one thing led to another and one of the historical buildings of that area had had caught fired and just pretty much got destroyed that to me would be disrespectful you know that's an understatement right so always let people know ahead of time of your intentions always ask permission and always be respectful that that's just the way i look at it i agree 100 percent all right um i we are getting close to the end of the show so i did want to give you a chance to again give everybody where they can find you find your book all that great stuff Okay. Uh, first of all, I do have an email address. It's simply hauntedplantations at gmail.com. If anybody had any questions or comments, I'd be happy to hear them or to read them. And also, you can find the book on Amazon.com. You can find it at Llewellyn, L-L-E-W-E-L-L-Y-N.com. That's the publisher. Or at many of the bookstores throughout the country, we've got books a million barnes and noble so on and so forth it's out there it's out there yeah <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being on the show i greatly appreciate it and uh, i definitely got a lot of information from you and it's been a blast oh i've, I've enjoyed myself and i look forward to working with you in the future myself as well all right you have yourself a good night and uh, we'll talk soon yes i hope so all right Huh? All right. All right, folks. That was Richard Southall, author of Haunted Plantations of the South. Now, as I said, I am running solo tonight. Um, unfortunately, I did not have a chance to get any scripture for you guys for scripture time, so I do apologize for that. And Eric will be back next week with that information uh, for what we are t- going to be talking about. Uh, with that being said... Next week, we will be having on Kay from the Deception Detection Show on with us to talk about Thunderbirds. Now, these creatures are a complete topic that I've never done research on, so it will be very interesting to research and debate. And I am looking forward to it. It's going to be a great show. One thing that I did want to get out there for you guys uh, before I head out for the evening. We do have a survey on paratruthradio.com. So if you are listening and uh, have a chance, go to paratruthradio.com, click on the Listen Live tab, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and there is a survey that uh, we, we're just trying to get a little more information on our listeners. Uh, we want to know more about you guys and that kind of helps us as hosts. So definitely go check that out. Also, if you listen on Spreaker, hit that follow button. That will automatically notify you if you're a follower that uh, a new show is up and ready for you to listen to. And uh, that that is the best way to find out about new shows. As always, we do post on Facebook, Twitter, as well as our website paratruthradio.com and uh the other thing too is we want you guys to interact with us come to paratruthradio.com every sunday at 8 p.m eastern time and jump into our chat room chat us up give us questions we love to interact with our listeners and you can also get a hold of us at paratruthradio at gmail.com if you guys ever have any questions concerns uh ideas for great guests ideas for topics we haven't covered yet or to add on to topics that we've already done, please email us at paratruthradio. I'm sorry, at paratruthradio at gmail.com. And I think that's all we got for you guys. So it's time to say goodbye. It's a very sad moment for me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> We will be back next week. Same chime, same channel. See you guys next week. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day.
Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.